Our speaker tonight um, is the uh, Professor of Cognitive Neuroimaging from Aston University. Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for Professor Gina Rippon. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much for inviting me. So what I'm going to be talking about is... um, why we think that there are differences between males and females determined by their brains, why we think that's wrong, or why I think that's wrong, and to look at the sort of history of how we arrived at that idea and whether or not the 21st century is really trying to deal with it or whether or not there's some of the, again, gremlins from the 18th, 19th, 20th century who are actually addressing the research Uh, that's looking at these kind of questions and still coming up with what what I think are the wrong answers. I will say I'm an Aston Brain Centre, Aston University in Birmingham. Lots of people say, Aston University, where's that? And you say Birmingham and they go, oh, Birmingham, that's Birmingham University. You say, no, it's Aston University. Um, And then when you say Aston Villa, immediately they think, oh, great, okay. So so somebody's phone is already ringing. It's not mine, is it? (laughs) Okay, right. So um, just, oh, they do look very weird. Anyway, very pretty. Um, Just to say who I am. Uh, I'm a cognitive neuroscientist, and we'll come back to that a bit later. I work at Aston University um, in the Aston Brain Centre, where we have, we've been fortunate enough to gather together all the major brain imaging techniques uh, that are currently available. Um, So we have what's rather old-fashioned now, EEG, um, and you can't really see that, but that's me with my then very young daughter who discovered the problem of having a mother who's a neuroscientist. Um, (laughs) We have fMRI, which people are probably familiar with, where you can look at where things are happening in the brain. But the big thing about Aston is that we have a particular system called uh, a magnetoencephalograph, where we can look at the magnetic fields associated with the brain, and we get amazing images associated with that. And I'll come back to that uh, later. And the kind of things we can get, which have kind of been lost, the impact has been lost by the pinkification, um, is that we can actually look at um, pathways in the brain. So we can look at structures. We can look at where particular things in the brain are happening. Um, we can look at things on a millisecond timescale, etc. So we, have, we are able to produce these amazing images. More of that later. I do that quite a lot. I think I'll tell people about that, and then I'll say, I'll tell you later. So remind me if I haven't told you later. Skeptics in the pub. Well, it's actually a picture of me when I was first invited to do this. Okay. I thought, I looked at your back catalogue, and I thought, ooh, there's lots of really famous stand-up comedians or astrophysicists. Um, I'm, and I'm not currently, although after a glass of wine, I might be either, um, <laughs> one of those. So I thought, this is a bit worrying whether or not I should actually agree to do that. And then I found this definition on your website. A sceptic is one who prefers beliefs and conclusions that are reliable and valid to ones that are comforting or convenient. And as we'll see later, this is absolutely perfectly described to look at the way in which I'm addressing uh, sex differences in the brain. So really saying... It might be convenient or comfortable to think of the fact that there's men and there's women, their brains must be different, that explains everything, let's all go home, uh, etc. But I think, hopefully, by the end of uh, this evening, I'll be able to explain to you that things aren't quite as cut and dried as we think. So, what I'm talking about is understanding the brain. And this is something which 
Um, oddly enough, uh, people were aware early on that the brain had some kind of significance. Um, so people would take a skull, for example, fill it full of ball bearings and weigh the ball bearings, and that would tell them how big this organ that they'd um, taken out of this skull uh, was, and they'd start to draw conclusions about how, how big this organ was, the brain. And people started mapping particular um, facilities, aptitudes, skills, etc., onto different parts of the brain, the old-fashioned phrenology. So I call that ball bearings and bumps. So the idea was very early on, people were interested in how the brain related to what we could do. And this was actually quite an innovation. Uh, uh, way back in, in history, um, uh, various uh, researchers were quite understanding that the brain was key, so that Galen and, and uh, Hippocrates and people like that knew the brain must in some way be important, although the Egyptians did tend to just chuck it away when they were uh, putting the, brain to, uh, the body together to, for the afterworld. Um, Aristotle put a spanner in the works by saying the brain was actually for cooling the blood. So there was a kind of idea that the blood ran through your brain and that was a way of keeping it cool. So people didn't really think that the brain was that important. But as soon as they did start to think it was important, interesting things started to happen. Okay, so what people started saying is about the 18th, 17th, 18th century, let's have a look and see what actually happened. Um, let's see the, the, those bits of the brain that are important. And they started saying, let's see if we can explain differences in the world out there by reference to differences in the, in, in, in the brain. And a lot of this applied to, for example, the lower classes or different races or women, all of whom were put together in this kind of different categories that we needed to explain why the brain was different. So first of all, we got um, the idea that uh, early on, that the frontal lobes were really quite important. I think there's actually a slide missing. I'm just going to quickly... I did one. Okay, I'm just going to go back because what I really wanted... Thank you for that. What I really wanted to say is that about um, 1673, Francois Poulain de Blabat said, actually, the mind has no sex. So there was a new science emerging then, which was anatomy, and he was very interested in looking at the anatomical differences between males and females and saying, did these explain the mind at all? And he came up with this wonderful conclusion. The mind has no sex. No reason why women shouldn't achieve the, as much as men, given the equal opportunities, etc. He wrote some wonderful books associated with that. And Londa Scheibinger has done a, a, a beautiful book called The Mind is No Sex, which is a, a study of women's role in science. And it's really about how women had a very central role in science uh, way back in history. And gradually, as science changed, it became professionalized, institutionalized. Women were written out of science. So she calls it the fact that mind has no sex, so there really is no reason why women shouldn't be achieving as much as men. Um, so at that point, we thought, hurrah, we don't need to think about any differences between the brain. But then we got to this idea that actually, for some reason, that wonderful statement got lost. I mean, if that was the truth then and the truth that retained through research, we could actually stop now and get our burgers and beers, etc. But unfortunately... Uh, things have not gone uh, according to plan, or maybe they have gone according to plan. So first of all, we have the idea that about uh, the middle of the uh, 19th century, the frontal cortex was identified as really important, quite rightly, as we now know, 
that was the repository of the highest mental capacities. So once individuals were able to study the brain in more detail, not just fill a skull full of ball bearings and hope for the best, they realized the frontal lobe was really important. At that point, they said, it's very strange that the frontal lobes are much larger in men, very small in women. Actually, women um, have an area of the brain called the parietal lobes, tends to be larger in women. Now, the parietal lobes are lower down the evolutionary tree than the frontal lobes. So when we're looking at women, we're looking at what they call homo parietalis. So women, uh, women's brains are actually a sort of arrested stage of development in evolution. A bit like children, a bit smaller than men's brains. Um, so this explained why men ran the world and women didn't. So they took the status quo and said, hurrah, we can now understand this by looking at the brain. Now, there was a, a bit of a blip, as, as happens often in science, when researchers started saying, actually, this parietal lobe here, now we know a bit more about it, and they were able to study it and the effect of injury, etc., is actually quite important. So it does seem to be key to all sorts of skills and aptitudes that people have. So the neurologists at that stage were a bit stuck because they've said we've got these you know, women who've got big parietal lobes and now all of a sudden the parietal lobes have become a bit more important. But not to worry. Um, Patrick, for example, a neurologist writing at that point, said actually we've slightly got it wrong. Um, the parietal lobe is somewhat smaller in women and the preponderance of the frontal region doesn't imply intellectual superiority. The parietal region is really the more important. So all of a sudden, having decided that women had bigger parietal lobes, they revisited their data and said, really sorry, guys, we got it wrong. And I mean guys, deliberately. Uh, we got it wrong. Actually, the parietal lobes are smaller in women, um, and that explains why they're inferior and can't run the world, etc. So you're starting to get a flavour of the way in which... Science, wonderfully objective, <coughs> full of um, uh, wonderful techniques which can um, uh, provide objective measures of, of what's going on, can rewrite history or rewrite their data in a particular way. So it's not that I'm necessarily a, you know, paranoid or a, a conspiracy theorist, but there is a bit of that going on. Okay, so that was the 18th century... I won't go into lots of detail because what I really want to talk about is the 21st century. 19th century, um, uh, Woolley writing at the end in 1910 did a big survey of all of the research that had gone on to date. And throughout the 19th century, there was a big emphasis on the fragility of women, on the fact that their role was as a reproductive um, object and that, that, that if they tried to use their brains in ways that they shouldn't be using their brains, this was not a good thing. And Woolley actually looked very carefully at all the research. And this was an amazing quotation at the beginning of the last century. There is no field aspiring to be scientific where flagrant personal bias, logic martyred in the cause of supporting a prejudice, unfounded assertions, and I love this, even sentimental rot and drivel, have run riot to such an extent as here. So there was a lot of the complementarity of women. We have these fragile creatures who are brought onto this earth to bring up children, to be helpmeets, to be support to their husbands. Um, we mustn't challenge their brains with difficult concepts, with the power of leadership, etc., because constitutionally, they just can't cope. So this was a quotation. 
If I was going to take you through the 19th century, um, this could be a whole other talk. I, I, I have a terrible tendency for putting up a slide behind which is a whole other talk. But there's quite a nice uh, little video here, which some of you may be familiar with. It's clearly a spoof, but I think it summarises the situation really nicely. Look at the effect of education on a man and a woman's mind. Education passes into the mind of a man. See how the information is evenly and tidily stored. <laughs> now see the same thing on a woman. At first we see a similar result. But now look, still at a reasonably low level of education, her brain suddenly overloads. She cannot take in complicated information. She becomes frantically and absurdly deranged. Look at these venomous halidons. They went to university. Hard to believe they're all under 25. Yes, over-education leads to ugliness, premature aging, and beard growth. Okay, I feel I could actually stop there, really. I, I think it summarizes really nicely what went on in the 19th century, the idea that we had these fragile creatures whose brains just couldn't cope. 20th century much more militant, if you like, the idea that women should be able to do things, and if there was um, some barrier in the way of doing things, this was part of a political conspiracy. So we got much more of the kind of biology versus um, society approach, where a wonderful book by Janet Sayers called Biological Politics said the whole idea that women's biology renders them more vulnerable, more fragile, etc., really needs to be challenged. Um, and also uh, other books that saying, looking at the incidence of, of, of pathological behaviour in women, saying this wasn't due to their biology, which is what had been the explanation in the preceding decades. It was actually due to the fact that their, the roles that they were expected to assume were actually detrimental to their health. Any kind of conflict between what they wanted to do and what they're expected to do actually was very distressing. So the higher incidence of pathological behaviour in women was not due to a biological problem, but due to the expectations that society provided. And that's this, that particular century, the last century, was very much focused on hormones. Lots of blame was given to hormones, almost all of which research was carried out on animals, which I'll talk a bit about later. But there was a lot of measurement of if we change hormones then this will happen to male animals if we change hormones this will happen to females and this explains all of their behavior and behind all of this is the, the what we call biological determinism the idea that your biology is what you're born with your biology will take you along particular tram lines if you like and effectively where you're going to go, how you're going to end up, what you can do in your life is determined by your biology. Uh, it's called biology is destiny. People make reference to the natural order of things. And the idea also is if you challenge your biology, then you're in for a really rough ride and likely to have all sorts of problems. So the kind of research we saw in the 20th century with this big focus on hormones Big emphasis on the premenstrual syndrome, and it's something that I did research in, in, in at that time. So it's just interesting to, if you take a step back and think, okay, premenstrual syndrome, generally only true of women. Um, <laughs> let's have a look and see how it's actually presented. So you have a, a particular group of society whose hormones determine 
that they are emotionally unstable, hostile, um, may commit crimes of violence, uh, lower judgment, decreased efficiency, etc. Not getting a very good picture here. And the kind of um, data that were collected to support this was collected by this wonderful thing. It was actually called, it was devised by scientists called Moose. So you had the Moose Menstrual Distress Questionnaire, which, if you think about it, um, is quite an interesting title. But uh, interestingly, the Menstrual Distress Questionnaire. So lots of questions about how bad things were at particular times of the month. I've never come across an ovulation euphoria questionnaire. <laughs> interesting. So the odds were being stacked. We get reference to hormones, you know, hormone problems causing women to be tomboys not interested in marriage, not liking to play with, boy, uh, with, with dolls. And you think the whole concept of the term tomboy in itself is suggesting that there's some kind of prejudice behind this kind of research. So at the end of the 20th century, there was this kind of image of these rather fragile, uh, f still fragile creatures, um, subject to raging hormones, but still keeping women in their place. Okay. And the kind of thing that you got associated with this is what I call psychobabble. This is where psychologists were saying a lot of the problems that women have is because they don't acknowledge the role they should have in society. So as much as women want to be good scientists or engineers, they want, first and foremost, to be womanly companions of men and to be mothers. Um, this is Bruno Bettelheim, a man. Um, and this was a, uh, evidence that he gave... Um, to a U.S. Um, uh, symposium on putting American women in science and engineering. Effectively, he was saying, really not a good idea. We need uh, help meets and mothers. We don't need women, science and engineers. And similarly, uh, Rheingold, another man, uh, anatomy decrees the life of a woman, etc., etc. So the whole idea is, you know, stop fighting against your biology. Right. So now we get to the 21st century. Hurrah. At last, wonderful technological achievements, clear-eyed view of the world, lots of scientific research which can really be objective about these differences that have uh, interested uh, the world for so long. So this is why I really want to talk to you. This is the kind of meat of what I want to talk to you about, which is slightly, again, pinked, I'm afraid. Um, the 21st century game changes. What could actually change our understanding of sex differences in the brain and actually why they haven't so far? So first of all, there's the advent of brain imaging, which of course is what I do um, and therefore something I feel quite strongly about. There's also the concept that our brains are plastic. Our brains change throughout our lives. Our, change, our brains are moldable throughout our lives. You might think, well, everybody knew that. Actually... 30, 40 years ago, I don't know if anybody here is a medical student, but if you went to medical school, you'd be told that you're born with your adult number of neurons, uh, brain is a certain size, the brain gets bigger as your neurons start to interconnect, but nothing much changes. If your brain gets damaged, those nerve cells don't get replaced. Age of about 50, unfortunately, uh, start to fall off the cerebral cliff and your grey cells... Um, start to disappear. So the idea is that you really don't, um, you know, your, your brain, what you can do and what you can't do is determined fairly early on in life. That's something which has now changed and which should change our view of sex differences in the brain, but which hasn't as yet. And finally, sex redefined. 
um, the idea that this nice kind of dichotomy into males and females is actually something we should be thinking about quite carefully. And of course, all of the work that we're looking at is based on the idea that there's a category of people called women who behave in a particular way and have particular sorts of brains, and a category of people called men who behave in a particular way and have particular sorts of brains. So those are all challenges uh, that we can um, deal with. So this is back to the kind of wonderful images that I can produce, which is what really attracted people's attention to neuroimaging, saying at last... You know, we've moved on from ball bearings, we've moved on from indirect measures of hormone manipulations or the effect of brain injury, etc. We can really look at the brain, we can see what the brain is doing, while it's doing it, when it's doing it, etc. But the seductive allure of neuroscience, people like me really excited by brain images saying, isn't it wonderful that we can show you what our brain's doing? And then you find that these sort of enthusiasms are picked up I need to say at this point, anybody here write for the Daily Mail? I kind of assume <laughs> not. But I always, I always, the hapless Daily Mail journalist is always my scapegoat, I see. Um, this is the kind of image that the Daily Mail journalist think is wonderful. The Daily Mail journalist, who's an arts graduate, those of you who are arts graduates, I'm not in any way decrying arts graduates. <laughs> but they tend to be somewhat seduced by these wonderful images and they have a misunderstanding of what it's about and that's what I'll tell you a bit about but if you look at these the all genuine things that I found on the internet about how exciting brain imaging is Justin Bieber calls psychosis says a leading neuroscientist so all of these problems I can solve I can explain the neuroscience of Bob Dylan's genius and I can also explain the financial crash if we'd only been brain imaging bankers we wouldn't be where we are today. So it's kind of exciting. You think, it's wonderful. You know, people really think brain images know the answer. But unfortunately, oh, well, there are some really weird ones. I just threw those in as a bit of a laugh. Again, you can't see them very well. These, again, are actual images off the internet. So um, this one is one of my favorites, the neuroscience of kitchen cabinetry. So you don't just go into Ikea and buy a kitchen. You have to go and get a neuroscientist to image your brain and I presume there'll probably be some virtual reality so that you get to look at the kind of kitchen that would really, you know, uh, solve all of your problems. And I love the bit about all of this business about you tailored to your personality, uh, scientific study of the nervous system, and right at the end, as well as building a seamlessly practical kitchen, so you do want a kitchen that works as well. So, you know, as a neuroscientist, you think, isn't it fantastic? You know, people really think we're, we're, we're quite great. Um, we can design kitchens as well as understand um, the financial crisis. But the news is not always good news. And when I was looking at this in the train, I thought, actually, I'm already showing my prejudice by saying this is not always good news. But we will come back to this. But we do start to find that, poor old Daily Mail, um, all the kind of findings that people are looking at, and they're still looking at sex differences, and this is something I'll come back to, um, produce these wonderful images which really tell a story, seem to tell a story. So this was something which came out at the end of 20, where are we now, 2013, which I'll talk about. Um, and the idea that these wonderful wiring diagrams that we can get now, so we're no longer looking at bits of the brain like phrenology. We can now look at how the brain interacts. Somebody did research, compared males and females. This is a male brain. Look at all of these interconnections, front-to-back connections, whereas the female brain has much more connections uh, from right to left. 
Fantastic. At last, solve the problem. We now know that men's and women's brains really are different. Big excitement. It's very interesting that you get much more response to saying that men's and women's brains are different than saying actually they're not. Uh, people don't understand that, and you get lots of... Um, I'll talk a bit about what kind of uh, internet connection, uh, inter internet uh, contacts you get to afterwards um, when you say that men's and women's brains aren't different. You get lots of interesting JPEGs of men sending pictures to show that they are different from women. <laughs> and we're not talking about brains, as you can imagine. Okay. <laughs> at all. Okay, so this concept of hardwiring, I think I mentioned it in the abstract. It's something which um, is, is, is a kind of 21st century expression of biological determinism. The idea of hardwiring is that you're born with these particular pattern of connections, or maybe the pattern of connections kind of develop because of your genetic uh, 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 history, and effectively your brain is what you're born with. And then this was something, it used to be Larry Summers, the uh, head of Harvard, who came out and said, oh, maybe we haven't got so many women mathematicians and scientists because actually, uh, not behind his hand, they're just um, not capable of it. So that was the big bugbear. But now this, this was happened in the summer. Nigel Short, well-known neuroscientist, um, comes out and says, women don't have the brains to play chess. The reason there are no female grandmasters is because their brains just can't do it. Um, men and women do have different brains. This is a biological fact. So this was published, uh, much research, uh, much uh, publicity associated with it. Um, fortunately, uh, we were allowed a kind of um, right to reply and said that A, Nigel Short isn't a neuroscientist, B, he's wrong, and C, the reason that women leave chess is actually because they find chess a very macho environment and they do not like uh, the world uh, of chess. But that's perhaps something we talk about later. Okay. So why is it that with all of these wonderful techniques we haven't sort of dispelled this myth or even proved the myth. You know, maybe I'm actually just prejudiced and I don't, it's an inconvenient truth. I don't like what's being found. But let's have a look. Let's have a look, step back and say, what's happening with neuroimaging? And this is where I think there's kind of two categories of neuroimaging and how it's reported. There's what I call neurotrash, which is really where the poor old hapless Daily Mail journalist just doesn't get it. Or the less hapless people, pop scientists, writers, who think, here's a good one here. Uh, let's have a look at the old kind of Mars-Venus dichotomy, self-help books, etc. I'll come back to that. There's also something which is slightly more worrying from my point of view, is that what Cordelia Fine, who's written a fantastic book called Delusions of Gender, calls neurosexism, is that even in the scientific community, we're still hidebound by this idea that men and women are different and our research should be proving that. Okay, so let's have a look at these two kind of categories of, of, of my despair with neuroimaging. First of all, the idea is, I showed you those wonderful pictures, and it does look fantastic. You think, at last, we know what's going on in the brain. So you have this kind of image, can't really see there, but that, that somehow we have a, a direct uh, window into the brain, that what I'm doing when I'm imaging a brain is actually almost looking into the brain as it's working, seeing what's happening, and... I can instantly tell what that person is thinking, what they're looking at, what they're reading, whether they're male or female, etc. Um, very favourite of neuromarketers, I hoiked this off a Sans Neuromarketing uh, Company website, which is their pitch to sell the uh, advert that gets put on the uh, during the um, 
the baseball competition at the end. Super Bowl, thank you. Uh, so there's big adverts in the Super Bowl and um, people make huge amounts of money from having these ads. It costs a huge amount of money and they make huge amounts of money if they get the right advert. So Sands is very keen on showing what the right advert is. So they have these wonderful images where the, an advert is showing and you have brains kind of going pink and red and... Uh, bits of activity wandering across the surface of the brain and it really looks as though you know if you had a whole audience if you were all sitting here with with uh, electrodes on your head I could actually be monitoring what's going on unfortunately that's not true a lot of we can collect data really really easily but because of all the problems associated with the fact that people's <coughs> brains are different that the signals that are coming from the brain are passing through scalps and hair and meninges etc we have to do a lot of statistical manipulation it takes a long time so we're not we don't get a kind of real-time picture of the brain and sometimes my colleagues hopefully not myself, you get drawn into this and somebody says, you know, some television company says, could we just have an item on the news about, you know, we're going to image our presenter learning something. Can you just show how their brain is changing while you learn it and you tr try and explain patiently to them what's going on. Somebody came up with a really good idea. Um, what they actually did was it said, you don't realise how much we have... I can tell from the sniggers that some of you know this anyway... Um, you don't know from um, what we do that we have to take a lot of thresholds, we have to statistically normalise data, we have to smooth images, etc. And as a nice illustration of this, somebody took a dead salmon. They put a dead salmon in an MRI machine and they showed this dead salmon pictures of happy and sad faces. Okay. <laughs> now, a dead salmon will give out the kind of data that an MRI system can collect. And you can then run it through an appropriate um, statistical package. And you do find that there's a little area here, which you can say that's the area in the dead salmon's brain, which allows the dead salmon to tell whether or not it's seeing happy or sad faces. Which, of course, is a spoof, but it's an idea of demonstrating... Um, that it's not as straightforward as you think. It's not a kind of real-world experience. And in fact, there's a lo lovely paper being written recently looking at how these statistical thresholds work and how people are, uh, are taken in by this idea. It's called the, uh, the Dead Fish That Launched a Thousand Skeptics, so clearly appropriate for tonight. Okay, so, so it's not as easy as it, as it looks. It's not, you know, I'm not dissing my own uh, discipline, but it's, it's a bit more complicated than that. The other thing that you get is the idea that we are kind of A to Z atlas makers. Actually goes back to the old neophrenology or phrenology. It's saying that what I'm doing is I'm trying to look at different bits of the brain and this is where the language where uh, we report brain imaging actually gets um, is part of the problem. We talk about bits of the brain lighting up because actually it's an easy way of displaying what you're seeing. What we really get when we're collecting data, is lots and lots of electrical signals. We actually process those signals um, and impose them on an image, and we colour code them ourselves. So, you know, that could be your brain going by. Um, your brain doesn't actually look like that. So I don't look at a brain and think, oh, look, that bit's red, that bit's blue. I'm doing something to that signal. So people get a bit confused. They think, oh, well, if I look at that bit of the brain and it's active, that means that person's... Um, 
uh, that person's thinking about when the interval's coming up and, and they can get their next beer or something. But what we can't do is newer images. And again, it's a bit of a shame that this has been pinked. You can't look at an image and say, I know what that person's doing. I can say that quite confidently now. We're shifting it slightly, which I won't go into, but you might want to ask about later. So I can actually show this image to neuroscientist colleagues and say, do you know what this person is doing? Because normally what happens as a neuroscientist, you give the person a task, they've got to learn a list of words, they've got to look at a video or something, you get the data and you put the two together and you say, isn't it interesting when they're looking at that happy or sad face, they're not a dead salmon, um, you get activation in this part of the brain and not the other part of the brain. But I know what the, what the task was that was going on. You can't at this stage look at a task and say, do you know, it's called reverse inference. The idea is that can you look at a brain image and say, do we know what's going on? And that's the kind of impression you get from hapless Daily Mail. And so I can show that to people. I showed that to colleagues of, of neuroimaging and said, anybody idea what's going on here? Um, you can't see very clearly, but there's activation in a part of the brain called the amygdala, another one called the insula. People had fairly good guesses. They said, oh, that's kind of associated with emotion. So somebody was having a good time. Um, there were some slightly scurrilous suggestions about what I was actually imaging. But nobody guessed um, that actually it was an image of somebody eating chocolate. So uh, although I could, you know, go onto the dark side and go to neuro neuromarketing and say, I know what the brain looks like when it's eating chocolate. Um, but the idea is that, that, you know, these wonderful images don't allow you direct access in the way that um, sometimes we get the impression that they do. So you need to avoid this idea that... Um, there's parts of the brain which do things. And these are some of the books which get produced, The Brain in Love, The God Part of the Brain, you know, the idea when somebody's having a religious experience, a particular part of the brain lights up. And the reason I'm telling you this is because a lot of the uh, support for the idea of male-female differences is actually based on the idea that different parts of the brain are associated with different kinds of activity. If you get more activation or that part of the brain is bigger, then you somehow you're better or do more of that. Um, and it's really much more... I think you'll find it's more complicated than that, um, which is a wonderful book by Ben Goldacre, um, mm -hmm. which actually sums it up nicely. So for me, you get what I call uh, neurotrash, neurohype, neurobandwagons, neurobunk, lots of books like this, why men don't listen, women can't read maps, you've got the whole men are from Mars, women are from Venus, Venus big bugbear of mine. Um, brain sex um, did actually unfortunately give a talk once where one of the authors of brain sex was in the audience and objected to her book being called um, what I call this lot uh, which is neurotrash okay so I think that's, that's, that's perhaps part of it this is there's the impression given out there that we have all these wonderful techniques and they're being hijacked to support the idea that men's and women's brains are different but I've also mentioned what I call neurosexism. And this is where we come back to this Daily Mail talk, which is a report on a paper published in 2013 about wiring differences between males and females, which it was claimed settled the argument once and for all, males and female brains are wired differently. So let's forget this idea that, you know, women can do anything, um, women have a particular place in society, etc. Their brains are different, therefore they can't. And I use those terms advisedly, um, apologizing to the, to the men in the audience as well. This is really the way the argument tends to be stacked. Okay, so 
this is the point at which we need, there's a tiny bit of statistics in here. Anybody here a statistician? Well, that's good. You do know about bell curves. Very good. Okay. Okay. I was getting a bit anxious because my statistics is not a very, very strong point. So if I start launching into it and somebody says, but what about? I get the idea really is what is your effect size? If you go away with anything tonight, the phrase, what is your effect size, I hope will be very useful. The idea is if you get two groups, say men and women, you collect data on a particular measure, you'll generally get bell curves, uh, a distribution of scores. If you look at men and women, they're overlapping in a particular way. Now, the top one is actually about height. So you think it's a pretty big difference. Most men are taller than most women. So we're a bit safe if we're talking about, we are talking about sex difference, men are taller than women, full stop. But if you actually look at those data, there's quite a big overlap. So beyond, say, 185 centimetres, you could say if an individual walked past my eye line and they were taller than 185 centimetres, I'd be pretty, pretty accurate in guessing they were male. But in these kind of areas here, there's quite a big overlap. So something which is well-known, you know, and physical strength is the same. So the effect size there is, okay, there is a difference. There's a mean difference. If you did statistics, would be highly significantly different. But there's a bit of a dark area here where it's not really, really reliable. Um, when we're talking about sex differences, you get nothing like uh, as big a difference as that. Most of them, there's a really nice... Um, it hasn't come across. There's a really nice uh, website where you can actually play with effect sizes. So you can put means in and show how big the effect size is. Effect sizes of less than about... You've got effect size of one. That's quite big. You get tiny little about 0.3. So effectively what that means is that if you've got data from two groups, you wouldn't really be able to tell without knowing who, who the member of the group was, whether they were male or female. I think the argument here I'm trying to say is that it's actually most of the data that subsequently I'm going to be talking about are of very small effect sizes. So when we're talking about difference, these differences are actually tiny and really not very informative. And that's quite important to hang on to, which is why you know, how big is your effect size is quite an important question to ask. Because out there is this idea that we're talking about non-overlapping dichotomies. All men are like this, all women are like this, and this is why women shouldn't do this, men can do that, women can't do this, etc. So that's a little bit of statistics, so apologies for landing you with that. Now, the reason I drew your attention to this is because the study that was um, reported in the Daily Mail, it's a paper by a group... Um, the lead author was Ingel Halikar, but there's uh, Ruben Gur and, and uh, Rachel Gur have had a kind of lifelong history of looking at sex differences in the brain, really to prove that there are sex differences, that they're meaningful, uh, they're stable, they're fixed, biologically determined, shouldn't be challenged, etc. So that, this was from that particular group. And they said they looked at all these connections in the brain in the way that we now could, and they said that these um, really striking differences that they were surprised to find. I don't know if any of you saw a Horizon program recently, but they were interviewed on that. They said, really surprising, you know, how fixed these differences were. Would say that the ones they depicted, I think there was about um, 15 to 20 out of over 100 that they measured. So it was only those that were significant. Fair enough, you know, that's what they want to report. 
But this was the biggest, success, uh, biggest um, effect size of any of the differences they found. So really, really tiny. So when they were talking about significant differences between males and females, that's the kind of data that they were getting, hugely overlapping. So you can never take a, you know, a picture of a connectome and say, oh, that's definitely a female, or that's definitely a male. And yet what they said, this is what they said in their paper, this is, wasn't the hap hapless Daily Mail filter, fundamental sex differences, male brains structured to facilitate connectivity between perception and action, female brains facilitate communication between analytical and intuitive processing modes. And incidentally, they didn't measure any of those behaviours. No? So they didn't measure those. So you get these wonderful structures, big... You know, and this has had a big impact. And it's a paper which keeps getting cited, in spite of within 24 hours blogs, um, you know, people you know, publishing the effect sizes and saying, you shouldn't listen to this. Once it's out there, it's out there. And that's, that's why it's a problem. Okay. Second aspect we need to remember, which passed the early neurologists by, actually, is that size matters. This is good old Homer Simpson with his brain. It is true, I have to say, that male brains are bigger than female brains by about 10%. But that's because males are bigger than females by about 10%. Their hearts are bigger, their livers are bigger. Because they're a bigger organism the organs within that organism are bigger. And what we're now finding is that the scaling aspect of that uh, difference in size is also relevant to understanding the brain. And that's quite important because, again, you get lots of things. Well, men have got uh, a bigger hippocampus than women. Therefore, they are better at X, Y, and Z. The bridge of, of nerve pathways between the two hemispheres is bigger in women. That's why they're better at emoting and understanding, um, uh, you know, being empathic, etc. And different parts of the limbic system. The ratio of grey to white matter is different in males and females. And in fact, there was a paper just last week came out that said once, now we know how to scale up, you know, allow for the size of brains, now we have a much better measure of... Um, of how we can work out the volume of a brain, if you correct for size, the fact that the person is bigger, taller, heavier, whatever, all of the sex differences we've found so far disappear. So it's really important that any research that publishes differences between males and females knows and reports and corrects for the fact that their males in their group are likely to be bigger than their females. And of course, I wouldn't be saying this otherwise, this generally isn't true. The reason this is quite important is because what's happening in the brain imaging uh, community now is that lots of labs are putting their data together or putting, you know, putting on big websites where uh, anybody can access the data and analyse it. Because before we were looking at 10, 12, 15. Now you can look at 900, 1,500, 2,000. And people are saying, well, you know, we've got huge data sets. We've got 2,000 men, 2,000 women. Prove that there are differences they don't do is correct for the fact that those 2,000 men probably on average are bigger than those 2,000 women and you really need to correct for those differences and, and I gave a paper a talk recently talking about the sins of neuroimaging and one of the sins is the size matters sin so if any of you happen to find yourself reading a brain imaging paper 
uh, or even the Daily Mail reporting on a brain imaging paper, you need to go back and say, I wonder if they corrected for the absolute brain volume. And I draw attention to this paper. This was a meta-analysis where somebody looked at, I think it was 156 different reports of brain structures differences and saying, if we put all of these together, um, clean up the data, got a big data set, demonstrates that there are lots of um, sex differences which we really ought to take into account. But those studies, none of those studies corrected for absolute, they were, they were all absolute brain volume. They didn't correct for the fact that the people were bigger or smaller or whatever. So now we've got something in the, in the canon, which a big meta-analysis, which looks impressive, but it's actually putting together 156 mistaken studies. So I, again, I don't like to diss my discipline, but given how it's used or misused, it's something that scientists should be really careful of. Um, checking on the time. And this is another one, again, where somebody was talking about, um, I think this was resting state. Again, this is a study where they found differences between males and females, um, in particular strength of pathways. We hypothesize the men's lower brain connectivity might reflect optimization of functions, require specialized processing such as spatial orienting, and, and uh, women's were associated with um, integration of, of network supporting language. Now, it might be okay if they'd actually measured spatial orienting or language in the people whose brains they were looking at. They weren't. They just measured connectivity, didn't correct brain size, and kind of reached into the ether for a nice stereotype to explain their findings. So, again, you know, I have to go out in disguise in case these people catch up with me. But it's something that we really need to be aware of, you know, as scientists. You know, if, if our as we will see shortly, our, our data are used in a particular way. We need to make sure that they're telling the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Okay, so one of the things I did, I, I had a, a session some time ago when I was training in Eurotrash Army as part of a um, Women of the World Festival, etc. And I said, uh, if you believe in direct action, I wanted people to, I don't know if anybody here, uh, stickers to put on books or producing T-shirts so the kind of thing I thought we might do to kind of take our fellow neuroscientists uh, to task <laughs> is that you can get a sticker like that when you see books in, in Waterstones or wherever, or you could wear a T-shirt, which is something like that, um, where you actually are dissing the idea, you know, how big is your effect size is another one you could put on there. So neurotrash, neurosexism is something we need to combat because we've got these amazing techniques, but they are being misused in, in very particular ways. Right, so moving on, uh, plastic brains. Okay, the idea that our brain, brains are plastic. I use that term quite freely, and then you find kind of news reporters. So when you say plastic, they have the idea of like, obviously they talk about Barbie for some reason. Um, so do you mean your brain is made of plastic? And say, no, your brain is malleable, which is why this Play-Doh image, again, you can't really see. Um, this is something which is actually really quite new and I call it a 21st century game changer because it, it is really important because if you think about it the idea that our brain can change as a result of the experiences it has really flies in the face of a kind of biological determinist argument where you're born with a brain which is going to do particular kind of things and it sets off in its, its tram lines of biological determinism and so the idea is that, that uh, we need to understand 
that our brains change with, reflect, with, with respect to experience. And this is it's quite a famous study which always gets reported. I wish I was Eleanor Maguire, but I'm not. She uh, looked at the um, brains of taxi drivers, London taxi drivers, who'd done the knowledge. A particular part of the brain, the hippocampus, is associated with visuospatial processing, knowing where you are, planning routes, etc., and found that that part of the brain was larger in taxi drivers who'd done the knowledge. Now, you could say, well, maybe it was already larger. Maybe that's how they passed the knowledge. They thought of that, fortunately. There are some good neuroscientists out there. Um, so now there's a kind of video game, which is like learning the knowledge, whereby you can look at somebody's brain before they're actually exposed to this kind of high-level training uh, online, and then you can measure the hippocampus afterwards so that you can see that actually it's the effect of the training and not the fact that you already had a bigger hippocampus beforehand. And it's quite interesting. They've also started looking at retired taxi drivers and their hippocampus does start to get smaller um, once they've retired. Um, so again, it shows how malleable the brain is. And that's really important for all sorts of things. I mean, it's good for those of us getting older because we now know that this plasticity continues throughout life. So you don't have to, you know, let your old grey cells deteriorate and think, well, you know, now I'm over 50, that's it. Um, you can, you know, use it or lose it uh, is, is, is actually a, a true phrase. So the plasticity is really important. So that's the good news. Um, and that's also, gosh, that's complete, <laughs> completely meaningless, really. But the idea is that biology is not destiny. The top ones are actually because neuroscientists are interested in this, teaching people to juggle kind of ta a skill that most people didn't have. So you could measure their brains before they juggled. If you think about it, it's quite an interesting task. Um, very fine manipulation, visual spatial processing, anticipation, planning, etc. So you can show the brain will change when you learn to juggle. And this is actually, again, really interesting for reason, more interesting for reasons I'll come on to. This is people who are exposed to Tetris. Um, so they had six or eight weeks of learning to play Tetris. And um, people know what Tetris is. It, it's, it's that, you know, where you have to... Yeah, I'm sure you all know. <laughs> Not that you play it, of course. But, um, so the idea is that a task like this can actually change your brain. And what's really interesting, slightly anticipating myself, is that this is a very good measure of spatial processing and planning spatial uh, manipulation. And it's a task which, if you give groups of people who aren't very good at spatial manipulation and who are struggling with maths, for example, and in this case, actually, they all happen to be girls, you can give them six to eight weeks of intensive training in Tetris, you can show that their brains change, and you can show that their spatial ability, their performance in geometry, spatial uh, topological tasks, etc., improves. And that improvement uh, is sustained. So that, I think, is really important because it demonstrates that it doesn't matter if your brain can't do it at the moment. There may be reasons for that, but you can make your brain do it. So that's the idea that the biology isn't destiny is important. So that's the good news. The bad news is if we call this experience dependent plasticity, what happens if you don't have that experience? Of course, your brain doesn't develop that way. And this, this is the idea. This gets back to the whole idea about toys and the fact that um, related to, if you look at girls who have problems with spatial cognition, you could get a bit of family history. Did they have brothers? Did they have experience of playing with Lego and Meccano? There is a relationship between whether or not there was early experience with 
constructive toys um, and later spatial ability. So if you don't have that kind of ability, then maybe that could relate to a lack of skill that you have later. And that lack of skill means you perform poorly, which means people say, well, that's the trouble, you know, girls just can't do that kind of thing. So I think this is really important. It, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's a good thing and a bad thing. Good thing that the brain is plastic, but bad thing is that the brain needs to be exposed to the right kind of experience. And there's just briefly to say that a Lego, because there was a lot of um, stick that Lego was marketing itself more and more ferociously towards... Um, boys and so they, they produced Lego Friends. Anybody familiar with Lego Friends? Okay. Um, well, obviously, you know. But it just made me laugh that the kind of thing that apart from the fact that it's bigger, you know, to make a cake, make a cake, uh, you do two bits of Lego that you stick together, nothing like the kind of complicated maps. And the kind of thing that girls could make um, is a hairdressing salon. Okay. So they kind of got the idea but really missed the point. Um, <laughs> So, it's important. Plasticity is really important. And the other thing is, and this will be completely pointless, because it's about pink and blue, and it'll probably all come out pink. Yep. Okay. So, so the idea is, is, what happens if your experience is different? And this is all about the toys for boys, and this is actually a picture of a toy shop in which all the girls' toys are pink, and they're all fantastic and to do with caring and dolls and prams and fairy castles. The boys are blue, and they're to do with construction toys as well as guns violence, aggression, etc. And just, again, another talk that I could give about a whole pinkification issue, the idea that people saying, well, girls love pink. You know, that's why we give them pink. That's why we let them have princess parties. It's actually not until they're about one. So early on, if you give, you do a task where a baby can choose between a pink or a blue toy, there's no differences. They start to emerge much later, developmental spe developmentally speaking, in life. So the idea is that these known differences that girls prefer pink, etc., are actually probably a function of the brain, the plastic brain, being in a particular kind of environment. Now, some of you may want to challenge that, but we'll, we'll do that in the Q&A. Okay, so that's kind of meaningless, as I say. Now, one of the things that some colleagues of mine and I have noticed is that people got very excited about neuroplasticity. It means that all sorts of things can be changed. People can learn, people can recover from injuries, uh, aging people, um, their cognitive skills can be sustained. Um, uh, you know, the idea is that you, know, you, you could, anybody could be a musician of, of some kind. But strangely enough, this doesn't actually seem to apply to sex differences. So if we know the brain is plastic, why aren't we forgetting the idea that sex differences are fixed? Um, and uh, Cordelia Fine and, and some colleagues and I wrote this paper and said, look, why is it that when we're interpreting data and it's sex difference data, nobody refers to the plasticity idea. Nobody actually looks at the cohorts and say, okay, we've got males and females, but maybe they've also had different education experiences. Maybe uh, they've got different occupations. So maybe it's nothing to do with the fact that they're males or females, or those, those two tend, of course, to be uh, interconnected. Maybe we should be looking at that as well. So the idea really, again, is going back to my neuroscience colleagues and the phrase, age and sex is not enough. 
So just knowing the age and sex of your cohort is not enough. You need to know what their education experience is, at least, what their occupational status is, at least. Because it could be that that's changing the brain and not the fact that you're looking at a, a male or a female brain. The other thing which is important to realise, and I think is, is relevant to understanding why I go on about stereotypes, why I don't just kind of shrug my shoulders and roll my eyes, is that our brains are very permeable. It's a kind of slightly different version from plastic. Plastic means you have to actually engage with an experience or have an experience, etc., and your brain will change. We know that brains will also change with respect to attitudes. So if somebody doesn't have to actually do something to you, or you don't have to do something to them, your brain will absorb an attitude. And there's a part of the brain which there is a, a, a kind of debate about whether or not we should call it mirror neurons, but there is a system in the brain which responds in the same way if you're carrying out an action or if you're listening to somebody laugh or if you're watching somebody cry, the same parts of your brain will be activated as if you're um, carrying out the action, um, watching somebody cry, listening to somebody laugh. So it's almost as though your brain is doing what is in the world out there. And of course, if we're talking about stereotypes then it's quite important to realise that, particularly in the world around us, the world is full of stereotypes, the world is full of attitudes, the world is full of expectations. Our teachers uh, have expectations, different expectations of children. And children's brains, much more plastic, much more malleable than adult brains, even though adult brains remain plastic, will be picking that up. And I think that's quite important. And it's not just movements, which is how it originally came with people looking at looking at monkeys and saying our brain is doing the same thing if we are actually picking the peanut up as if we're watching somebody pick the peanut up. It's also to do with emotions. Um, and just as an aside, people who have problems um, uh, dealing with emotions or um, processing emotions, people on the autistic spectrum, also show different responses in this part of the brain. Now, the reason I'm saying this is because it's not just that, as I say, brains are plastic, they're also permeable. So if the world out there is full of attitudes, that can actually change your brain, which is coming back to the kind of whole topic of the talk, blame, brain, can't even say it, blame the brain, because the brain is at fault, but it could not be the brain's fault, it could be the environment in which it's functioning. And this is quite important when we come to talk about something called stereotype threat, which, again, you might be familiar with. The idea is that if you're a member of a minority group, um, ethnic minority, gender minority, whatever, and you're told that that particular group doesn't do very well on this particular task, by the way, would you just like to do this maths test? Strangely enough, you'll find that um, the performance reflects the expectation. So not, you don't just sit down and do the task. If you're at the back of your mind is, oh, gosh, you know, you know, I'm a female, I'm a member of an ethnic minority, people don't do very well on this sort of task, you become more anxious, you may well not perform as well on the task. So this is a behavioural phenomenon, but we now know that it also affects the brain. So this just briefly being aware of the time. Um, there's a task here where you actually take a, a, a mental rotation task, uh, which I won't go into in detail, but it's a task which purportedly females have a lot of difficulty with, trying to take a three-dimensional, a two-dimensional representation of a three-dimensional object and say, if you rotated this through 180 degrees, what would it look like? Would it match this one, this one, or this one? Females don't do very well on it. Uh, Mary Jane Raga, who did this study, said, took this task and she gave one group, this is a task, mental rotation task, 
Uh, three groups of females in this case. Females don't do very well on it, but, you know, do your best. Another group, this is a mental rotation task. This is what you have to do, match it to these. So didn't say anything about expectations. Another group, this is actually a task which is to do with perspective taking. So you've got this object here. If you could take a different perspective of this object, what would it look like from this perspective? And by the way, women are very good at perspective taking. So you get the same task, three different messages, a positive one, a neutral one, negative as you might expect, I wouldn't be telling you otherwise, the ones who got the positive me me uh, message did much better than the ones who got the negative message. But what was also interesting is that the brain activation associated with the different types of processing were quite different. So that if a message out there is, is exactly the same task, but if the context is this is a task you do well at or this is a task you don't do well at, um, your brain will process that information differently. So your brain is being affected by what's out there. Sorry? They all start at zero. Yes, yeah, yeah. It is, it is zero. They all start at zero. Yes. Yes, that's the mean proportion error, and it starts at zero. So those are the errors they made. Shall we go, come back to the last questions? Okay. Um, I won't go into this, but, well, I've just briefly mentioned that, yes, I will mention this briefly. We know that, the socio, that the, there is a relationship between socioeconomic status and different parts of the brain. Now, it's kind of arguing against what I've said, that parts of the brain and the size doesn't really make much difference. But there is a, a relationship here. And there's a particular part of the brain which is associated with difference in socioeconomic status. Well, there was an interesting study which said, actually, forget what your actual socioeconomic status is. Ask people what they think, you know, where they think they are in the pecking order. They say, if, if this ladder represented where you think you are in the kind of socioeconomic status pecking order, say from the bottom of the ladder, the worst off, you know, not got much education, financial future doesn't look that great, etc., to best off, where you thought you were on that ladder also is associated with the size of particular parts of your brain. So it's not just the actual socioeconomic status, which could be associated with whether or not you had access to education or health, etc. It could also be that your perception of where you were in the pecking order is in some way reflected in, in brain structures and activation. Now, I realise I'm straying into kind of controversial areas here. So, I'll carry on. Time? How long? Five minutes. Excellent, nearly there. Okay, so last of all is the whole idea that we shouldn't be thinking of sex in terms of dichotomies anyway. We shouldn't just be thinking of males and females. This was a headline from Nature this year, so pretty august. Uh, the idea of two sexes is simplistic, simplistic. Biologists now think there is a wider spectrum than that. I'll come back to that. But I think the whole idea of a dichotomization and challenging that is perhaps the, most, the best way forward to try and understand what's going on. And this is where we come a bit back to the old effect size. Lovely study here uh, by Janet Hyde. Big study of um, huge numbers of studies looking at known sex differences between males and females, how stable they were, whether or not they remained true cross-culturally across the world in different countries. Things that we thought we knew that men were better at maths than women. And she found that if you looked at all the effect sizes, 
virtually they all disappeared. Very, very tiny differences, if there were any. So she concluded that we should be looking at gender similarities. But we're still looking at dichotomies. And what's really interesting is the idea that we've got these fixed idea in our head, and that's what's fed out into the outside world when we talk about different. We think we're talking about men, all men, being completely different from all women. And we take psychology, psychological behavioral measures, brain imaging measures based on that. We look at sex differences. There's two lovely papers, and I wish I'd come up with these titles, which actually said, let's have a look at these data really carefully. Men and women are from Earth, or black and white and shades of grey? Just briefly to summarize, what they did is said, let's take all of these data and see if it would be better if instead of thinking of two um, categories, we actually looked at them in terms of dimensions. And almost all of the data they looked at in terms of things like empathy, uh, fear of success, all of the things we know uh, differentiate males from females were much better described by talking about a dimension. And they found that male and female scores were distributed along this dimension. So actually thinking in terms of males or females is really not informative. Now, most recently, we've started thinking about Well, at least biology is dichotomous, isn't it? There's XXSY. And we get books talking about brain sex that we know that if it's XX and XY, then presumably the brains are also you know, differentiated in this way. And findings are coming out and saying, not only is the idea that at least we can think of sex in terms of the 3G sex, genetic, gonadal, and genitals, those clearly differentiate males and females. Lots of interesting data generated from a really interesting browsing history, suggests that actually those differences aren't quite as dichotomous as you might think. Um, and Daphne Joel has written a really nice book saying that, uh, paper saying that 3G sex is not the same as brain sex. So just because you can differentiate people in terms of their genotypes, their gonads or their genitals, and in fact we're finding even that's not quite as dichotomous as we thought, you cannot differentiate their brain. And there's a paper coming out next week, in fact, which says we should be thinking about a mosaic brain. Even if you look at the different cells within the same brain, some of them have male characteristics, some of them have female. So we should really forget the ideas of male and female brain. I won't go into that now, I think. Okay, so those are what I was claiming for the 21st century game changers. They all could be game changers, really important. Currently, they're not. So hopefully, now we know about them, we can start to rethink about things really carefully and research will be redefined. That's quite important because the NIH this year, those of you who are involved in the medical profession or biomedical sciences, have decreed that all research, um, animal research as well as human research, should be done on both male and female cohorts and the data should be reported in terms of findings from male and female cohorts. Won't go into that questions afterwards. But it means that we're about to be hit with a tsunami of sex differences. So we really need to know, you know, what is your effect size? Did they take the brain size into effect, etc.? Okay, so right at the end, um, coming back to what I felt like at the beginning, God, you know, I'm not a stand-up comedian or an astrophysicist, I was realized that talks are about a common belief, sex differences, that either cannot be justified by the available evidence or can actually be demonstrated to be false by the available evidence. And hopefully I've demonstrated that, so I feel a bit more like that. <laughs> so that brings me to the end. Any questions?